Hi everyone, it's Joakim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Andrew Green, who is the SVP of Operations and Growth at Steelfront Group. Andrew has been in gaming for 20 years, has founded two companies and has worked for other gaming companies including Take-Two, EA and Tinyco. He then did a two-year stint at Andreessen Horowitz before he joined Stiglfront. We'll now talk with Andrew about his journey in gaming and startups and all the things that he's learned. But before we go to the episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Fabro, a new tool for collaborative planning that more and more game studios are starting to use. It was created by game industry veterans to help studios doing frequent live drops of features and content to get development, marketing and other teams in sync. Check it out, there's a free trial at favro.com. And if you use the promo code ELITEGAMEDEVFABRO, you're gonna get a 25% discount on your purchase. That's favro.com. Are you a mobile game developer who's looking to try something new on the ad creative side? My top pick would be influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific content from your games and Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Go to getigc.com to see some examples. That's getigc.com. At Pollen VC, we're committed to helping game developers improve their financial literacy. That's why we've launched CFO Resources, a new section of our website that hosts a free suite of calculators and financial planning tools to help you plan your business and grow faster. Our financial forecaster tool helps you project cash flows and visualize your ROAS and LTV based on metrics you provide. And if you're a hyper-casual developer, you need to check our hyper-casual velocity calculator. Head over to pollen.vc and click CFO Resources to get started. All right, we're live. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, thanks so much for, for having me. Sure thing. Like, we've been, like, bouncing around on social media and all sorts of DMs for a few years, but we never really had a discussion. So it's going to be really interesting to kind of, like, share all the, the like, hear your experience. It's also, like, share my my sort of, like, points of those things and have, have this kind of like a free free form discussion yeah i'm glad we're finally connecting <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so hey first question that i usually drop is like the origin story like what what how did you make your way into the game industry like i, I think you mentioned that it was like way way back when you were like a teenager that you already started your first company or something yeah well yeah i mean the first company i started was wasn't gaming related um even though i was i've been a you know gamer my whole life um you know i had just come off uh you know having a, a startup in the dot-com boom that failed i was 18 when i started that company which is nuts and i was now 21 when it failed um but had some experience you know in in marketing and on the internet. And I saw a job at take two interactive as a product manager, um, which was in New York. Uh, and I saw the job on like monster.com or whatever. And I was like, I am getting this job. Uh, Cause I just wanted to work in games so bad. And I didn't want to go back to college. Um, I just felt that like going to college didn't make any sense. Cause I was like, um, you know, what, what else am I going to learn that I, that I can't learn just kind of going to work um, which I know is a little anti you know, how a lot of people do it. But um, I was like, how can I stand out? Like, I was just like, I wanted to get this job so bad that I actually called the CEO of the, at the time, Kelly Sumner at Take Two. I just called him and oh. got his voice. I got his voicemail and left the most insane 
aggressive, excited message that I could. I think I blacked out while I was leaving the message. Uh, and apparently it was such a crazy message that he sent it around the office and people were getting a kick out of it. And the hiring manager, who was the senior vice president of publishing at the time, Jamie Lease, who's now the head of games at MLB, he enjoyed it and wanted to meet. <laughs> the role uh, was against me and this other awesome guy named Peter, uh, who also now works at MLB. And, and apparently Peter actually got the job, uh, but then he put his hand through a plate glass window and like, you know, had to go to the hospital and like was out. I know it's terrible to laugh, laugh at. I'm only laughing because this is like 12 years ago and whatnot. But I, so I got the job by default because he, you know, hurt himself. Um, and then uh, I got the job at Take Two. I was 21 years old and uh, which is crazy. And I made some of the, the best friends of all time. And, and, and working under Jamie was, was amazing. Before you go further into your gaming career, I, I wanted to go back to your sort of like that first startup experience during the dot-com boom. Like, was it like, the, what kind of things did you learn there? And especially those lessons that you want to share to somebody who's, who might be doing something similar right now, kind of like, you know, jumping on a really crazy ride early on in their life and not knowing what they might not be doing. Yeah, I I had no idea uh, what I was doing. I was 18. Most people don't start companies that young. Um, it was also 1999, which is like there was no out of the box infrastructure, no AWS, no back office services. There weren't even really business models. <laughs> um, and there were no real rules to the game yet like no culture around it. Um, so like founder culture, entrepreneur culture, VC, angel culture, none of it really existed. Um, so for me, you know, it, you, you learned a different set of skills back then, um, but, but they're all still completely applicable. Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, there are a couple of things that I, that I should have learned that I didn't also, um, but I think I learned how to pitch. Um, like how to sell investors um, and how to package like what was happening in your company and get investors interested and excited. Um, I think I over indexed a bit on this and on the dream um, when I really didn't understand how to operate. Um, I think as a young person, I was more interested for some reason, not in the reality of the business, but more in the reality of getting the investors interested in my business. Um, and maybe it was because the whole ecosystem was kind of not real at the time. Um, cause I, I didn't really understand where we were trying to go. I had a high level, we had a high level vision, but it was all pretty, you know, bonkers, which was, it was basically, we, we were going to college campuses and taking videos, um, and photos of people at parties and then posting them online for them because there was no infrastructure for the people to do that. And then sharing it with them so they could share it with their friends. And it worked really well. It just made no sense from a cost perspective. No. Um, so um, I didn't really learn the fundamentals of like product market fit or the fundamentals of like scaling really. But I learned how to take a concept, you know, raise money and like build a team and like build some really cool technology and stuff, um, you know, learned how to iterate, um, you know. I think my co-founder was actually a lot better at practical iteration and turning it into success than I was, but I learned a lot from him on that. And I also really learned that just hustling doesn't equal success. Um, you know, I think the key takeaway that I got and that I would give for the youngest of entrepreneurs, not maybe people that are, you know, like a little, you know, a little experienced or a little later in there, but, but if you're a really young entrepreneur, I would just say slow, slow down slow way, way down. Uh, you do not have to be successful by 22 or 23 or 28 or even 30. Um, take your time to learn. Yeah, I think that that sort of mentality is good for like anybody who's in their 30s or 40s even. Like, yeah. Sort of like, like if you have a meaningful, you know, project going on, like you want to do for the next 10 years, 20 years, you definitely want to slow down. It's <laughs> like you're going to be breaking things, a lot of things that not, might not necessarily need to be breaking even. Yeah. 
I think also like a lot of people in general don't take a time to stop and ask themselves like, who am I? What type of entrepreneur am I? Um, Do I need to love and enjoy the problem I'm solving or the market I'm in? Um, You know, because some, some entrepreneurs don't, some entrepreneurs just love the, the, the synthesis of winning and having a winning idea and growing something. Some people need to be passionate about it. Um, you know, so it's like just even understanding on a personal level, like who you are, right. I think actually can help you find success before you even get started. Cause some people don't know who they are or what type of entrepreneur they are. And then they just start down a road and they have no idea what, why they're doing what they're doing. And they end up externalizing a lot and can't make decisions because they're reacting so much. Yeah. And it's really hard to sort of like build a team around that kind of purpose <laughs> where there is no purpose really. Yeah. Like, I mean, even if, even if the, the purpose is just the passion for, you know, the customer or in a certain, you know, market or, or if it's in games, if, if it's a game idea that you love or, you know, that you just want to build a team and, and iterate, like, but knowing like who you are first, I think is super important and slowing down. And like figuring that out, I think is really important. Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then like going back into talking about your gaming experience, you you were a take two, then you joined EA, and then you had that sort of like gaming startup experience with Tiny Code. That was a growing VC backed gaming studio. Like you guys had great IP, like Family Guy. Like what was hard about growing that company? Um, I mean, Tinyco was was a very interesting, even strange studio. Um, you know, uh, Suli uh, as the found you know founder and CEO, he was he's an incredible entrepreneur, like incredible. Yeah. I've learned so much from him that it's like it's unbelievable. Um, you know, and he is kind of like the Uber entrepreneur in that he's so good at creating efficiency. And then he has a games company, which is like the most inefficient type of business. If you compare it to several other businesses, one could have. Um, But at the same time, he always had this never fail attitude, never die attitude that was incredible. And, you know, tiny co came of age in a time of cheap users. Uh, It was, it was easy when, um, you know, game systems didn't have to be too complex um, and the, the amount of features that were in games, you know, didn't have to be too, you know, too crazy, um, you know, they, and, and everything could be more kind of just simple, economically focused features driven by people who didn't even love games uh, at yeah. the time. We're talking like 2012, 2013, right? Um, and, but once the economics for the users changed, Um, You know, you had, you know, first the incentivized installs go away and then you had the app store algorithms changing and then you had all the different ways that CPIs increases increased. You had to create more elegant designs. And and at Tinyco at the time, we just didn't have that talent. Um, And and that was, you know, really hard when, you know, you've, you've scaled this thing that was working and working incredibly well. Like, I mean, the, the run rate, and the growth was insane. I think by the time, you know, we were realizing that the company, that the, that the economics, the, the unit economics weren't really working at all. You know, we, the company was already at like a $40 million run rate. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to have such outward looking or, or surface looking success. And at the same time, knowing that the business isn't working. Um, so we had to really like look hard at that reality and, you know, blow up the studio and start over like literally like just yeah. blow it up. And it was so hard. It was like the hardest thing that I have ever been a part of. Um, you know, it's still to this day, like I think about it and get like queasy, um, you know, because also like I had just joined, you know, about a year prior um, and, you know, now I'm in a situation where I'm, where I'm, you know, um, we're laying, we're laying off like, like a hundred people. Yeah. Um, and we, we had to do it. And I mean, the, the story behind even like how we, I mean, we were, you know, our financing was all over the place. Um, 
you know, we ended up raising a big debt round and, and, and Andreessen Horowitz did a pro rata. And, and in all honesty, again, like, you know, um, to, to A16Z's credit, like, I don't think we would have gotten through that without them. Um, and, and Mark, um, you know, kind of really you leveraging their relationship with SVB, but we had a good plan too, right? So mm. our plan was we're going to rebuild around the stuff that we're good at, um, which is art. You know, we have great art and animation. We have simple systems that we can deepen by leveraging the experience that we built in events on kind of like the card battle games that we were trying out yeah. and that we just leverage an enormous IP to grow the game. Um, and uh, we had really good narrative and creative at the studio. So while our systems, you know, design wasn't great, our narrative was great. Our art was great. Our animation was great. Our engineering was, was really solid. Um, and we, we did much better on Android at the time than anyone else. Um, so we, 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 we rebuilt the studio around this one huge bet. Um, and, uh, and we, we, you know, we're doubling down on narrative driven, you know, worlds with, without, you know, systems that weren't that deep. Um, and what's funny is we couldn't even get to launch. We were three months away from launch and we were out of money and Suli actually had to put in his own money. Um, and then we got the game to the launch and, um, you know, we, we had bad featuring, like not that good featuring, but we, we marketed the crap out of the game and it was the right IP and it just exploded. And we started doing like 1.5 million a day, like instantly and turned the whole company around. But that's, that's just where all new problems started. Um, but it was definitely a, a, a true kind of, you know, Phoenix rising moment for, for sure. I, I want to get back to the new problems in a bit, but I want to go back to what you just said about Suli, like he being this kind of like super entrepreneur, uh, but then he's running a games company, which is inefficient. Can you elaborate more on this inefficient and a super entrepreneur, not like being in the right place? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know that Jay-Z lyric, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. Yeah. Uh in terms of work, I feel like that's that's Suli. He's wow. yeah, I mean, not to focus so much on on him, but he is, you know, like loves efficiency. Like he just and I think that that he sees business almost as like a science where you're you're trying to um create outsized outcomes in this cru crucible of, of variables of money, time, energy, right? And I think he just is one of these people that loves growing things. He loves that, that magic that comes when, the, when something works, you know, when, oh my God, it's working. Like, I think he absolutely loves that. And in games, like, I think he loved it also, but it's, it's much harder to get to, you know? It's, it's not like, you know, you can iterate and test on, on, on commerce ideas on, you know, smaller, like, you know, software as a service concepts or, or many other businesses that aren't even, you know, like um, that, you know, deeply, you know, technological. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and he just loves that magic, but the inefficiencies of, of having a games business are, are, you know, are pretty numerous. Like you've got the, the product market fit, problem mm -hmm. like what game should we be working on like where is the market where is the customer what's happening in the user acquisition or marketing landscape how are we going to grow once we even have something that's interesting um how do you combine all of the different you know aspects of the team to create a team that is you know unstoppable and will find success and 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 drive to success um I mean, it's just it's just rife with complexity. Uh, what do you so, think about the if if you think about the supercell model of you know having the best people in the teams and the teams get all the freedom and, and autonomy and independence, figure out those games and you sort of like get out of the way. Like, what do you think about that model as an efficient model? I think it's uh, it's could be more efficient, but I, I don't think it's efficient. Um, like, cause it usually takes a lot of capital or time or a balance of capital and time. Um, you know, like I think, you know, if you look at, I mean, I love supercell, like I, I think they're 
dynamos, um, you know, in, in the games business. But I think that they, you know, they are smart in that they take time, they stay efficient and they kill things relentlessly. Um, And that, you know, I think that they have created the most efficient model for a, you know, a difficult business. And and the thing that's amazing about games though, is when you get a, a hit or a single or a double, like you can take it for a major ride um, and get a lot of efficiency out of it and, and have a lot of fun with it. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're like just the person that all they want is efficient businesses and economics, like, you know, um, games is going to drive you nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's- but I don't think that's why we make games. And I don't think that's why people play games. They're not, we're not making them just because they're the greatest business on earth and players mm-hmm. aren't playing them because they're, you know, like, you know, just efficient. They're, you know, it's all magic. Yeah, it totally. Totally. Do, do you then like going back into that moment where you, you were saying that like the team that you had before you restructured Tynico, that you had people who were basically like didn't love games specifically. Like you could have people who are growing, you know, the user base, doing marketing, doing user acquisition, that those teams what was sort of like the culture there and how did it shift when you, when you got into the, to the era of like having Tynico, you know, growing again? Yeah. I mean, we had to get rid of all the, all the people that, you know, I mean, it was a very kind of, you know, early Zynga, you know, product management, investment banker led kind of, you know, mentality. Yeah. Um, but what's really interesting is I don't think it matters that the experience came from investment, that the product managers were prior like MBAs and investment bankers or, or, or um, you know, consultants. Uh, I think it was, the problem was that they didn't love games or that that's what they mm-hmm. didn't want to be doing with their life. Because yeah, I think about the, care, caring about the player and that experience. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because I think the best product manager we ever had came from Goldman Sachs. But he, yeah. he was a games fanatic and like, that's what he wanted to be doing yeah. um, and loved it. And uh, I think great talent can come from anywhere. And I, I just don't think we, we, you know, we built the team with the right, you know, with any eye on exactly what type of talent we wanted or, or to know that the culture needed to be a certain way. And then after we kind of blew up the studio and restarted, I think that's when we really, you know, we're focused on making great game teams. Yeah. Going into kind of the, yeah, that, that new problem era, then what happened after the success arrived and did you yeah, sort I of mean, like <laughs> focus on the wrong things? What happened there? Yeah. I mean, you know, there, we, there was a couple things we did, we did wrong. Um, you know, I think one was getting overly obsessed with, um, I mean, there's a couple things, right? Uh, I think that one is being a little too short-term focused, um, not really having and creating a long-term plan now that we were more financially stable. Um, and we would really just try to go get the best licenses we could uh, and then be like, okay, we'll figure out the product problem later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that was, I mean, and we had some really good ideas too. Like it wasn't just like, but there was one IP that, that, we, that we worked on um, you know, we tried to make a Star Wars game and our method of going about that project and the constraints of the project were not a good match. And we ended up having to kill that game. Um, and that kind of took a lot of the economic efficiency away for that year and a lot of our energy. Um, luckily, we had another product in development, which is a Avengers Academy, which ended up being like a, you know, it wasn't a, a major hit, but I mean, it was creatively great. And you know, balance. But again, like I, I don't think we ever sat down and were like, okay, what do we want to build? Yeah. You know, it was more like, you know, what's next? And um, and but but oddly, you know, we we took that. Let's try to get whatever IP we can, and then figure out the product problem later. And then that ended up working out on Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah. The, I think the the approach you were de- describing there comes to mind is kind of like top-down uh, initiatives for games versus like a bottoms-up approach for game initiatives. I think that's at least what Supercell sort of like seeks to build is this bottoms-up 
initiatives that get the, the resources and get the bandwidth and ultimately well, yeah. also the billions. It's the right, I think it's the only way that games, I think, you know, I don't want to say it's the only way that games works, but I think it's, it's, it needs to, the team needs to be really either the originators or the, you know, or, or, or massively bought in. Um, but that again, like that's what, what I loved about Stillfront is it's, it's, it's all team driven. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. which is, which is why I ended up joining there, but I agree that in general that, you know, that if everything is, is top down, it's, it's hard if it's not working because the team doesn't have the fuel and energy and passion to like get it to work as much. Um, and also their vision, like when it's vision driven, like they have, they have and hold the vision. They know why they're, they're even taking the time and building the team to, to do this. They, they, they feel it in their gut, in their heart. Um, and I think if you don't feel it in your gut and in your heart and that, 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 and that, and that, that includes like the, the market and the economics and the business side of it. Like we're not just talking about flowery stuff in your heart and in your gut. It's, it's the business side of it is in your heart and in your gut too, because you want to succeed. Um, and I think that's why the, the, the bottoms up approach or the, the team led approach is, you know, is right. But, but I think also when you're capital constrained, people get scared um, and it's harder to just trust teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can be a problem. That was a tiny co problem. Yeah. Going into that Tiniko experience, sort of like from from the perspective of meeting the investors of that startup, like you had Andreessen Horowitz as an investor. And then, like, can you talk about how people can build relationships with investors of a company where you aren't the founder? Like, I especially use that as an advantage at Supercell, where I spent some time meeting the investors, you know, they were at the get togethers at the, the office. So when I left to start next games, uh, I had those relationships with those investors. So what do you think? Like, is it a, is there a way to build relationships like that? Um, I think it's harder when you're not, uh, a, you know, part of like the, you know, leadership team, um, you know, but I think that if you aren't and you want access to that, uh, in some way, uh, and the company's you know small enough. I think you can ask and say, "Hey, you know, I'd like to, you know, I'd love to learn more about you know our investors. I'd love to to talk to them a bit or be be a part of our a board meeting." Like, yeah. I, I think there's no harm in asking and being like, "Hey, what are our board meetings like? Could I could I just observe and like mm-hmm. tag along?" Um, you know. I feel like also like uh, reaching out to the investor as long as you're just kind of introducing yourself and there's some utility to it, uh, I don't think would be, you know, problematic. Um, interestingly, during my time at TinyCo, I took almost no time to actively network. I never really went to many conferences or to like hang out. It was always around the work. Um, so it was the same with A16Z when we needed help. I asked for it. If they wanted us to be a part of something, I would see if it was valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I just believe that if I focused on the work, then they'd know. But I was also in a position for them to see my work. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, I don't think it's the same everywhere. And you, you have to look, you know, at each situation as its own thing. In, in the situation of TinyCo, it was all about finding results and winning in a fairly Spartan environment. Uh, and that worked for the investor relationship as well. Like, there were times when 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 a sixteen z would would you know want us to come talk to some partner of theirs about games and you know some you know and and I'd say like most of the time it was really beneficial for us but every so often we would do it just because we knew it would be helpful for them because they provide us so much help and it was also interesting for me specifically if there was a company I wanted to meet because I just wanted to learn more about it and uh, and then we'd go you know, show them more about the games market just for their value. And, and I think it, you know, went a long way. Um, but I don't think every VC is like that also. But I think if you just ask them, like, how can I help? If you ask anyone, how can I help? You know, like you're, you're already in the right mindset. Um, there's not many people that don't hear someone else trying to be helpful and reaching out and being open-minded and being like feeling negatively about that. So yeah. I think it's always positive. Yeah. 
yeah, I'm like on a daily basis getting messages from people who are in bigger game companies who are thinking about entrepreneurship and they're just reaching out to me. So that's also a cool way to like, like learn, like what are the big questions? Like when should I jump the ship and do my own thing? Those are different. Those are all different, you know, like things. So like another way of thinking about it, if you're an entrepreneur is if you're, if you're not, let's say this is your first time doing wanting to be entrepreneurial or thinking that you want to have a team or thinking that you want to raise money, like leverage your, leverage your current network. And if one doesn't exist, like create it, like there's not really anything that you're going to do wrong. Um, reaching out to, uh, an investor somewhere and saying, Hey, I'm a dev, I'm an awesome developer. Um, you know, is there anything that you want to know about what I've been working on or, or what goes on at, in these types of games? Is there anything I can do to help you? Um, you know, I'm thinking about getting a team together, you know, and, and would love to just chat as well. And, you know, maybe they won't hear back from, from some folks. Maybe they'll hear back from, from others and they'll start to learn. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Hey, question about your second startup or a company called Knock Knock. What was that company about and like, what did you know and what you didn't know when you were doing this company? Uh, what are you sort of like thinking about lessons learned from that one that you still think about today? Yeah. Um, knock Knock is, is, is great. Um, it's an incredible team. Um, and it started as, you know, I, I had left um, Tinyco uh, Jam City and um, it was after, you know, we'd, we'd sold the company and Potter um, uh, released. And um, I was thinking about what to do next. And um, I met uh, Andrew Friday, who was running um, the HTML5 games at Zynga. And um, he had some incredible data. Um, and I was just blown away by his excitement and his perspective. And he just showed up with, with, a market that seemed like it was like exploding with new tech that could create new gameplay possibilities. And all of what that original vision was, is just becoming more and more relevant every day today um, around, you know, no code or around frictionless games or around kind of like new types of, you know, I mean, everyone calls them metaverse, you know, um, platforms, um, and we were just excited about all of that and the idea of like less walled gardens, m less friction. Um, and um, we started throwing around ideas and just got really excited about it. And uh, we raised quickly from some incredible investors. Um, and uh, unfortunately, my, my um, part of that got cut short of the knock knock journey um, for, for personal reasons. My, my father got sick like two months after we raised our seed um, and it kind of took over my life. Um, but so I don't really feel like I got to fully go through that cycle, um, unfortunately. Um, but the good news is knock, knock is working on some really cool stuff. Um, but I, I learned a lot, even just in the, in the, in the year or so that I was working with Andrew on knock, knock um, about, I mean, about raising about, you know, valuations around figuring out like, you know, product market fit um, around a lot around fundraising um, that I didn't really realize prior and, and kind of building that initial team and vision. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's unfortunate. I just didn't get to go through like the full experience. Yeah. Do you feel that like that, that like you sort of like leaving the company and moving on uh, and they were moving on as well something that uh like is it hard was it a tough call to do like was it did, did you did you feel that like that was like a the right choice now like what do you think yeah i mean i feel like i mean it was the at the time it was the hardest thing like i could imagine like i like couldn't sleep i like you know it was it was a it was a mess yeah. um for me but um and you, you just have a lot of responsibility to everyone that you're working with and to the investors and to, you know, yourself and the co-founder. And it's just such a personal thing that it's like, it's so weird to have something that's so personal become like 
you know, impact mm. all of these other people on the team yeah. um, and, and everyone involved. And um, everyone was extremely gracious and helpful. Um, all of the investors and, and everyone um, on the team, like they, they were very understanding and very, you know, gracious. Mm. Um, and um, yeah. And it was, it was, it was, a really, really impossible and hard decision. And it took me a very long time to get to like an even keel um, while dealing with the situation. So in hindsight, I do think that it was still the right thing to do because I could not do the job. Mm. Uh, and I, and I, and I don't, I think I would only be kind of taking away. Um, and the timing was just horrible, but mm. um, sometimes you just have to do the right thing for yourself and your family, even if it's not the right thing for you know, like work, yeah, I, or, you know, so, yeah. Um, yeah. But, I think like, yeah, that was like two years ago when I left next games, cause I, I had this severe burnout and it was really hard to, you know, talk with it, the investors about this, that now I'm gonna, you know, I need to leave. Uh, but everybody was very supportive of this like whole decision. And I think that that's the thing that you often, because the startup is so, all-consuming um, it's sort of like feels like you can't really back away from it that easily but if you have a team founding team if you have investors that they, they will know that this like you need to do what you need to do yeah i think i think most people make the external aspects of 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 making choices like that um bigger yeah uh, because they just have such responsibility um or they're imagining it being bigger but i think at the end of the day like you'll know when you need to do that and and it's not easy at all but you need to realize that like that everyone does you know everyone is like very human about these things that when when it comes down to it like they'll ask you questions and and, they, and you deserve to give them a full picture of everything and you know still be very responsible about how you do it and there's better ways of doing it and worse ways of doing it but I don't think anyone would is going to trap you somewhere if you can't no. and you if you need to to move on. Like it's just uh, something that, but it's it's very difficult. Yeah, it is. It is. Can you then talk about the your experience at recent Horowitz? Like, like would be awesome to talk about the firm, like the areas. Like, I, I think one of the the few things that sort of I'm really interested in about is like. How do they identify deals and how do they work to know the founders before they do those investments? And secondly, like how do they add value uh, when they're sort of like on board? Uh, I'll let you answer those first. I have a lot of questions, but like <laughs> through, through those ones first. Yeah, I mean, you know, A16Z is like an, is an incredible organization. Um, they... Um, they really just try to find the right people uh, that really understand the markets, um, usually having operating experience um, in those uh, markets that they're covering from an investment standpoint. Um, and they have kind of two other facets that I think drive a, a lot of it that they've, they've kind of invented, right? And, and one is, you know, the, the, the content, you know, the content, um, mechanisms that they've built and that, you know, have kind of become an entire industry uh, on themselves in, in venture capital, just the, the venture capital content ecosystem. Right. But they, but they, you know, they've, they kind of created it. So they, they do it better than, than anyone else or, or, you know, some people might try to catch up to them, but they just have set themselves up to scale that. Um, and they, they create such amazing content and, and, events and connectivity. And then the other is kind of like managing the community. Mm -hmm. um, and they do a really good job of that. And they just have an incredible, you know, upstream and downstream, you know, partners and, and members of their community. And they're building out, you know, more and more of their community as part of their content, even like what they, what they've done with clubhouse, mm -hmm. um, you know, what they're doing editorially still. Uh, and I'm sure there's more, more to come there. And it just creates this, this agency, you know, this, this, that they can kind of be wherever they need to be because their, their imprint is so wide. Um, and it, you know, and, and then the, the view and the vision of, 
everyone that's managing the the deal flow, you know, they they can just see it. They can they can kind of just see very far and wide just on, you know, on on what's coming in and then they, you know, they can leverage that and meet more people, ask more questions and, you know, be try to be good partners uh, and be a good community members themselves. And I think they they do. They always try to add value at every leg of the the process. Yeah. Right. The the one thing I'm I'm really interested about is like the way that A16C the, the team develop themselves. So I, I think one big thing is that they're super curious about what's happening. But like, what are your thoughts there? Like how they can stay on that cutting edge of knowing what's gonna happen next. Yeah, well, I think you know you've got you've got a giant team of of really passionate entrepreneurs in the people that kind of work there. They all want to win, yeah, um, and and they want to explore and it and they want to make sure to to understand markets and not miss out on them. And they will they'll do pretty deep dives on 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 you know upcoming markets and understand if it's for them or not. But they they really do have a guiding principle around software, right? And, you know, and, and if it's software and if it's, you know, they can go really deep and get really, you know, kind of excited. I mean, they, they were so far ahead of crypto um, and blockchain investing um, that they're now just so far ahead of everyone. Um, and, you know, you've seen their ability to get into games. Um, you know, Mark, I think he started you know, being an engineer because he loved games, yeah. you know, he ended up inventing the web browser, but, um, you know, but, but I think he wanted to make games. Um, and, and, and interestingly, this is, this is odd thread of, of a 16 Z doing games investments and those games investments turning into things like Slack, uh, you know, yeah. um, or, you know, obviously the tiny co-investment or um, they've made some other big, you know, gaming adjacent investments, even prior to the, this last wave of games, you know, like improbable. Um, and even bonfire was, was pretty early. Yeah. Um, you know, and, but I think they, they, then they, once they identify the scale of a market that they're interested in and excited about, then they can really throw the weight of the, of the firm and the talent behind it and build the networks out and leverage the networks they already have existing and just kind of keep growing. And again, at the same time, at every, at every turn, they can just add value for everyone that they work with. You you worked with the the game team there. I was like, let's take take an example: the crypto um, crypto team. Like you have Chris Dixon. Like, what kind of like team does he have on the ground? Sort of like because he can't do it all by himself for sure. Like investing all these brilliant companies. But how do you structure that kind kind of like uh, legwork that you need to put in into like bringing in the deals and then like adding the value? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a huge ecosystem, and and they you know they've they've built uh, an incredible organization that sits next to the deal team, um, which is a bunch of organizations that all work in in unison around that network and around adding adding value. Um, so you've got um, you know their market development or you know which is like a business development function, but they also act as a strategy function and part community at times, like they're just massive connectors. Um, and then Corp Dev, which, which manages like downstream and upstream um, uh, capital networks, uh, yeah. marketing, which helps entrepreneurs with, you know, their marketing and marketing strategy, but also manages all the firm's marketing and editorial. Um, and, you know, the recruiting side and people practices side is amazing. Um, and the uh, cultural leadership fund, um, you know, has their network and their mission um, in, um, you know, investing in black founders. And um, they're doing more and more in diversity in general at the firm as well. There's the, the, the talent and opportunity fund that Frank and Nate are working on. And all of this is kind of like there's, 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 you know, a lot of people working in these networks. And, you know, what's amazing is that, you know, they're, they're both driving value for their current portfolio. Mm. They're doing favors for and driving value for entrepreneurs that they're excited about or that get in touch with them. Um, 
in some cases, which is incredible that they'll, they'll really be helpful to entrepreneurs that aren't even in their ecosystem uh, or, or, I mean, that aren't in their, in their portfolio. Um, and, and then they work with, you know, all these other entities like corporates or, or funds. And again, it, it's kind of like they, I think they believe, they firmly believe that one, you know, if they, if they keep helping and they keep trying to help connect everyone, um, that the goodwill and the brand, you know, will, will, will grow, but also they will just see more. So it's a very, you know, it's a very balanced approach toward building because they really are trying to create results for everyone. And then they in turn get, you know, to see and, and be a part of more. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like a side effect that you get deals. Exactly. Honestly, like, but, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's kind of like the thing that I said earlier about, like, you want to get into the investment community. Um, well, just start reaching out to people and saying you want to help them, Yeah, you know, and actually be valuable and add value and like leverage your time and your expertise and help and just help people and try. And you might not get value out of it immediately, but like yeah. you gotta, you know, but over enough time of helping enough people, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll keep, you'll get value back. And I think it's a very kind of karmic, you know, way of doing it. Yeah. And it totally works. Yeah. Yeah, it works. It works. And, you know, I mean, the one thing that I, that I, that I firmly believe about A16Z is that they, they really care about entrepreneurs. Like that is like that they, they were entrepreneurs. They believe in entrepreneurs. They care about entrepreneurs. I mean, again, I don't think Tiny Co would have survived without their help. Um, you know, what they did in helping us land the IPs, you know, um, Mark got on the phone with, you know, the executive vice president at Fox and the president at Fox. Yeah, we had, yeah. he had a friend of his that was the ex chairman of Fox call them. They were like, we don't know who you're going to send next. Like, we feel like we're going to get a call from Obama or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so like they, they go, they go to bat. Right. And, and then it just comes back to them. Oh, yeah. It is cool. I remember I mean, it's also I was cool actually... when you have a bunch of geniuses working there, but yeah, it's, it's yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. That helps uh, too. It does. Yeah. I, I remember pitching, we were pitching next games. We went to A16Z. That was 2013. Uh, I don't recall who, who was listening to us, but uh, it wasn't like for them today. I mean, they weren't, yeah, games really, you know, the, the, the model, again, like I think A16Z has always been interested in games, but until they understand like the scale of the opportunity, mm-hmm. you know, like they can't go yeah. a thousand miles an hour on it. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, and then now they, they see the scale of the opportunity for games and understand how they can be helpful in it. And I think that's what, you know, that's at least my perspective on what got them, you know, really moving on, on games. Yeah. Hey, you've been involved in startups for uh, like 20 years, over, over 20 years. Like what have you learned about recruiting for early stage and then for like growth and then going into that hyper growth stage? Yeah, I, I have, I have you know, I have like a recruiting playbook and I have an overall like entrepreneurial kind of like set of principles and um, they go together pretty well. Um, But if we're just focused on recruiting, I think in order to be good at recruiting, you have to force yourself to love recruiting um, because I believe that the most successful recruiters are forging really natural relationships. And in order to do that, you need to uh, relax um, and, um, as part of the kind of engagement piece, but then you also need to be really rigorous about managing a pipeline. So you have to be really neurotic about managing your pipeline and then really re- relaxed, uh, and natural and excited about your conversations. So it's like having a split personality. Um, so you set up your pipeline by finding like the best targets you can possibly find and make a list of targets that are way bigger than you think. Um, and leverage, you know, I think LinkedIn provides as much information as you need. Um, and, uh, you can hopefully have good intuition about a person's background. Um, and then you can stack rank those people. Um, and then you reach out to them. And a lot of people like to blast these like really impersonal emails. And I think that you can use a mail merge tool and that's fine, but I think that you should really, um, take the time to write a personal note to each person 
um, or make sure that you, there is an aspect of your personality also in the, in the note um, and make sure they feel like that they're connecting with a person, even in that email, that they feel that you are present in that email. Um, because if it doesn't feel like you're present, then they're just getting an email and that sucks. Um, and then, you know, hopefully because you've been personal in your emails and you've been thoughtful about who you're reaching out to and the, the opportunity that you have for them actually makes sense. Um, you know, make the stakes really low. Um, like when you get that for, when you, when you're responding to them on email, respond as if they're already a friend. Um, you know, like be casual, like just be cool. It's not a big deal. The, the, cause if you make it a big deal or make it feel like more formal, it's just going to feel crappier because it's really should be informal and the stakes should be really low when you hardly know each other. Um, so when you get on the phone with them, you know, act as if you're in your pajamas and about to watch some bad TV or something. Um, cause these people are, you know, and learn, learn about who they are. And, and before you go into your pitch and like have a conversation with them about life, like these are people, they have full lives and they're taking their time to get on the phone with you. You should get on the same wavelength, have humility, um, let them get to know you and you know them and then sell them on your vision and your passion and your excitement. There's an art to telling the truth, um, about the opportunity and about the company in a way that is additive. And you have to know what to expose because if you're just saying everything is, is sunshine and roses, no one's, no one's going to trust you. And um, you should get excited about what there is to be excited about and sell what is sellable. But you have to be honest and positive about what's challenging and what the culture is like. And if they're a fit, they'll want to go further. Uh, and then you can move from selling and finding fit to understanding their competence and if they're a fit, right? And um I think growth is the same way. Um, like when you're in a growth stage, I think you need to set up an apparatus where you train everyone that's recruiting and everyone that's going into your panels to have the same type of perspective and understanding of the culture um, that you're, you're trying to impart. But hyper growth is where it turns into a giant mess. Mm. That's a whole other topic. Yeah. That's about, that's really about like operating structure and like having a good team and, 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 and having people that can make decisions autonomously that really understand the vision of the, of the company and who you're looking for and the team and the problem and, and can do all the things that you would do as a great recruiter and entrepreneur at a really expansive and, and dispersed level. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I, I need to, we need to do another one with your entrepreneur playbook. It was amazing that you shared this. Recruiting. Yeah. Um, man, final topic that I want to explore. You now joined Steelfront just recently. I'd really love to hear about the future of the strategy, bringing together these world-class studios and about the challenge that Steelfront faces when you're trying to keep pushing forward, when you want to find the next hit games or the profitable games even. Like, can you elaborate on that area? Yeah, I mean... Um, still, you know, still front, I joined about, um, a little over two months ago and, um, it's a group of amazing people, um, from the management team to the studios. Um, I really love the structure, uh, and the vision, um, for the company, which is, which is why I joined, um, the structure being a, a distributed one in which, you know, we're not looking to build large central operations group that dictates technology or project green light, um, but acts more as a connector, facilitator, and, and helper that builds through leveraging all of the excellence that exists within the studios and helps distribute the knowledge and capability efficiently. Um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, as I was talking about A16Z or you're talking about Supercell, you know, I think the power always comes from empowerment. Mm. Um, it's very hard for people, for, for folks, especially if things aren't going well, or if the culture isn't aligned to that, if your culture hasn't, isn't that way, or has kind of coldly gone away from empowerment, I think yeah. it's very hard to get back. But I think if you start in a mode of empowerment and you have a strong vision around empowerment and how that works for you and how that being a good citizen of a culture of of uh, empowerment works. Like, I think you can, you can build something incredible. And I think still front is, is doing that. 
And, and I think that's infectious. And that's why I, I joined. Um, so a good example of, of, of kind of distributed, you know, um, excellence is, is kind of like Good Game Studios, where, where they do user acquisition for a bunch of other studios. Um, and then they aggregate knowledge um, and share that knowledge with the other studios. And, and now that I'm on board, I'm working even more diligently and, and harder on, you know, bringing together kind of these, um, you know, this discipline in, in marketing, but we're doing this in, in a variety of other disciplines as well. And, um, you know, and then there's some, some aspects of the kind of actual technology and tool sharing that's going on, which is, is really exciting. Um, but I think the thing that makes it possible and that's important is that the culture is real. Like all the studios are open to working together and understand that cultural imperative of like sharing knowledge and not being closed, but being open um, and, and being like, your success is my success. And it's not perfect, you know, but it is real. And like, it's, it's, and it's amazing to see it when in action every, every day is, um, you know, when you have a broad culture of studios all around the goal of each other, of, of, of empowering and, and, and shoring up and, and, and pushing up each other, and the goal of creative and player success, it feels good. And you see where it works, um, you know, and um, even for instance, around like iOS 14, you know, the whole group has collaborated together on, on that problem. And you just see how much faster everything moves when everyone is, is sharing their knowledge actively. Um, and um, there's camaraderie in real time around that. Um, and then, you know, we're just able to move so much more nimbly because there isn't some group in the middle collating information so that they can look good, right? Or hiding yeah. information from other people because they want territory or anything like that. It's just like everyone's like, we're in our studio. We want to win. You're in your studio. You want to win. The group wants us to win. We're all coming together to win. How can we win? Like, it feels really good. And, and, and the thing that I love is that it's, that it's working. Yeah. And when you're adding more more studios, it's sort of like that continues. And yeah, I guess it's more about like what happens when sort of like the big hit comes from one studio. Everybody like tries to learn, of course, from that one studio. Like that hasn't happened yet. So that's that's an interesting like thing that if, if there's like a super hit that comes from one of the steel front studios, like how does that actually pan out? Yeah, I think I think it it it's you know we've had obviously there's there's been a lot of you know there hasn't been a a clash of clans you know size hit yet but yeah. um, you know hopefully there's there there will be one on the horizon and I I do think that I think as a group uh, management team we have enough um, like ability again to move nimbly and to have access to to the budgets to support when we think a hit's coming. You know, we can actually like really, you know, all work around that and and utilize aspects of the of the group to to prop that up even bigger. And I think we can scale a game and be as big as any publishing organization out there. Like I think at scale, we already are. It's just not necessarily around a single hit or a smaller portfolio. You know, we just have a, a bit of a broader portfolio. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, but I, think I, we'll get, I think we'll get there and I think it'll be really cool to see. Yeah, yeah. In a sense, like thinking about what Supercell is doing with Metacore with this credit line that they recently announced, and like they have their own synergies there in place. So it's it is sort of this this realm where you're you're working on like these creative problems. You love games, and then when you find something that's gonna work, you can double down as as a as an organization on like making it really huge. Yeah, I, I I love what Supercell's doing with uh, Metacore. I think it's super smart. Supercell, super smart as usual. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's great that they that they. Well, I mean, you know, a big part of what why they're doing that is they must believe in the team that they're entrusting that capital to, right? And so it's kind of an extension of trust, the same way they would trust one of their internal studios. It just happens to be an external studio. And they have the ability to leverage capital to help it grow in a way that makes sense. And I think that it's a really beautiful way that they can help folks that 
need to scale and don't have access to that capital. Yeah. And there's helping the ecosystem again. Like it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Hey, I want to get into our final questions, Andrew. What's your favorite book and why? Um, so I'm not the biggest reader in the world. Um, I mostly read comics and graphic novels. I kind of have ADD, um, but I, but I do have so so one on the graphic novel side. Um, uh, oh man, I'm gonna butcher his name. Um, Guy Delay, I think his name is. It's spelled D E L I S L E. He's French. I, I always butcher French. I'm so bad at it. Um, he wrote. Um, these a, a travel series of graphic novels, uh, Pyongyang, um, Burma, Jerusalem, um, Shenzhen. And he just has an amazing way of capturing his experience as a animator, like going to these very, you know, different places than he's from in, in France or in the West and trying to get an understanding of them while living there for an extended period of time. And it, I think they're really awesome. Um, but, but the most important book I ever read was The Divided Self by Ronald David Lang. Um, I was young and in my Jaden Smith phase of thinking I was really important uh, and, and knew things. And it was on a list of existential, ex- existentialist books and it kind of broke my brain. It opened up my eyes uh, on all aspects of like being a person um, in a very succinct way. But it's, it's written very chaotically. It takes a long time to like it's like a psychological, you know, book written from the perspective of a philosopher. Um, but being from New York, New Jersey, and getting most of my perspective from cartoons or the people who ran delis or pizza places, it was, it was a good way to expand my horizons. Yeah, I haven't heard of that one. You need to check it out. It's amazing. Do, do you have a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think, I think the one I shared earlier, you know, was, was, really impactful about tiny co and about that layoff and, and finding success from, from coming out of that. And, um, you know, I think that between that and, um, then, uh, knock, knock, uh, experience as well. Like I really learned that like, and even, even now, even, you know, like, I just feel that there's a lot outside. And when I was at tiny co, I wasn't looking external, right? Like I wasn't reading Twitter. I wasn't reading LinkedIn. I wasn't reading like anything. I wasn't like, conf- I wasn't going to conferences. I wasn't, I was just focused on like what we could do and win. And then as I got introduced more to the world of like investors and business and entrepreneurship and networking and all of that, I've started to do more Twitter and more LinkedIn and more, you know, networking and more, um, you know, kind of and I think it's it's wonderful and, and really necessary, but I think that if you don't know how to go away from it um, and like get back to your center, there's a lot, too much to react to, too much information, too much to react to. And um, and you start to get FOMO and you start getting antsy and you, and you don't know how to slow down and like figure out your place and your perspective. Um, and I think that the juxtaposition of the way I was at Tinyco to the way I've been post Tinyco um, and and getting into that, I'm trying now to uh, slow down more and be less on social media and figure out how to network and 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 have relationships like the one we have without being on the on the networks at all times. Like it's just it it it's very hard. Have you heard of this book called? Uh called essentialism the guy has another book now called effortless so they i, I like both of those ideas <laughs> yeah it's like greg mccowan the author so he he writes about like a lot of this kind of like one thing that you need to focus on at a time um, the essentials and then you get to the effortless from there so yeah i, really I think like that makes sense yeah, I think that makes sense. Like, I don't, I really don't know anyone that can do more than like two things well at a time. Yeah. And, and I feel like now we're supposed to like do 75 things well at a time. And I think that's just, I think it's bullshit to be honest. Yeah. Like, I don't think yeah. anyone that says that they are fit and happy 
and have time for themselves, have time for their family, are killing it at work, have their side hustles, have their investments, run their network. Yeah. I just, I don't think it's possible. I think it's all like, maybe they'll do some of it well and some of it, whatever. But I think there's a big reality behind a lot of that that isn't being spoken about. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, the Jim Collins has one in, in one of his books about like the 20 mile march, like taking small steps every day versus like walking 20 miles in one day. Yeah. I, uh, I started juggling. i start no but but it's really funny i started juggling because i just wanted to do something that had no purpose but that i could see incremental like increase in how good i was every day uh and it had absolutely no pressure on it and i can now juggle three balls and it feels amazing to just be able to do that and i know it sounds so stupid but it's actually like a great microcosm of trying to do much harder things yeah not doing everything immediately yeah man this is really fun uh the last question i usually ask is if people want to ask questions like what's the best way to get in contact with you um yeah uh i'm farming underscore xp on twitter um linkedin you know andrew n as in noel or is my actual middle name but n as in nancy that is not my middle name, though. Uh, Green uh, on, on LinkedIn. Um, those are probably the best ways to get in touch with me. Um, or shoot me an email. Uh, uh, Andrew at Stillfront. Nice. Thanks a lot, man. This was really fun. Uh, hopefully, you get, get over to Europe soon. And uh, we can really meet up physically at some point. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, have a, <laughs> have a beer or something. It would be awesome. Uh, yeah, I'll be there soon enough and I'll definitely let you know, but uh, I'm looking forward to meeting up for sure. Thanks so much for, for taking the time. This was, this was really fun. Yeah, it was. All right. Take care, man. All right. Later on. Bye-bye. Thanks again, Andrew, for coming on the show. If you like our content, please do hit follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, please do go and check out our weekly newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com newsletter. It's going to go out on Friday mornings where I share all the interest areas for myself in gaming startups. So check it out and I'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye bye.